This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. How would Alfred deal with these two visitors to Gotham from Ireland? Well, I mean, first of all, how did you get to the ball? And, uh, and secondly, I, I'd grasp you firmly by the elbow, and I'd walk you very smartly to the gates, and I might even show you my commando knife. Uh, so. <laughs> you could set the dogs on us as well. Yeah, well, no, I don't need dogs, mate. Welcome back to Fear and, more importantly, Gotham TV Podcast, the home of the hit show Gotham and the DC Connected Universe. I'm one of your hosts, John. And I'm Derek. Welcome. Welcome indeed. This is episode 15 of season one now of Gotham, entitled The Scarecrow. And there certainly was a scarecrow as well. There certainly was, yeah. Yeah, really cool. A big though. one, flapping in the wind and looking a bit like the destroyer from Thor, actually. <laughs> no, interesting, interesting. A bit of a glowing mouth as though it's about to shoot something out. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of. But mm-hmm. um, very creepy uh, little use of the scarecrow yeah. motif there. Brilliant. Yeah, I certainly had the fear in some of the scenes in this episode. Oh, did you have the F-E? AR. Mm-hmm, yeah, classic tune. Classic tune. Absolutely classic. And, and of course, this is the 40th episode of Gotham TV Podcast. Mm-hmm. So welcome to new listeners and hello again to all those that are still listening. Definitely. Thank definitely. you for listening. Yeah, and with that, a little bit of an announcement at the start of this episode. Um, we also do a podcast called Defenders TV Podcast, which covers the Marvel Netflix TV shows and the connected Marvel universe. Um, this week on April 10th, Netflix will be releasing the show Daredevil, so we'll be releasing our first review podcast for the Daredevil TV show on April 10th. Yeah, not all 13 episodes in one day like Netflix. Um, Our organization, our cottage industry, isn't quite (laughs) um, as uh, big or as extensive as Netflix. We'll be bringing our first review episode of Daredevil, hopefully on the same day, if not that weekend, April 10th, mm-hmm. and then we'll be releasing two um, episodes of Daredevil each week, hopefully. Um, we are joined by additional members, so there'll be obviously myself, John, and Derek, but we'll also be joined by um, Irene and also Chris, who will also be reviewing the episodes of Daredevil, and of course, in the years to come, we will also be reviewing um, AKA Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, and the miniseries Defenders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you want to subscribe to that podcast, you can go to defenderstvpodcast.com slash iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And just like the Gotham TV podcast, you can also subscribe on our website or listen to us in any good podcast catchers. Um, our, we have already released uh, four episodes of Defenders TV podcast so far, covering the uh, the setup for for Daredevil, some of the trailers, and uh, some of the characters that you're going to see in that show. Plus the Ben Affleck film of 2003, Daredevil, yeah. Man Without Fear. I almost blocked that out. <laughs> but it's a good review. It's a good review. Um, it has... Bags of sand on a string, if I remember. (laughs) So head on down to where we review um, Electra's 
bizarre fighting style yeah. of bags of sand on a string. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, head over to DefendersTVPodcast.com slash iTunes to go and subscribe to those podcasts and hopefully you'll join us for the Marvel Netflix TV shows. Uh, Absolutely. Looking forward to that. I think with that then, it's on to our review of The Scarecrow. Okay, so this episode of Gotham, episode 15, is directed by Nick Copus, who's directed a bunch of episodes of Arrow and of uh, and of Flash. I think he's directed only one episode of Flash so far. Um, but yeah, another DC talent crossover there. Um, it's also written by Ken Woodruff, who's another one of the executive producers for Gotham and wrote uh, Arkham in the past, episode four of Gotham, which is a great episode. Yeah, great episode. Really yeah. good. Um, so, John, do you want to give us a synopsis of this episode? Jared Crane and his son, Jonathan, are still on the run from the law and still harvesting adrenal glands as Dr. Crane continues to develop and refine his serum, which he begins to use on himself and his son to inoculate them against their fear. As the GCPD continue their investigation of the Crane's victims, Jim's life at the precinct suddenly becomes slightly more complicated with the arrival of Dr. Leslie Tompkins as the new medical examiner. Just how will Jim balance their romance with their professional work relationship? After the boat Fish left Gotham on was overrun by unknown assailants, she finds herself in a desperate situation, locked in a basement. Or is it a prison? Or is it hell? Fish begins to plot her way to the top of this underworld in an attempt to take charge and find out exactly who runs and controls the facility which she finds herself trapped in. Her former adversary, Oswald, is still skulking around Gotham, trying to avoid Moroni, and pleads with Falcone to protect him from Salvador Moroni. Falcone gives Oswald a task, though, to own and manage Fisher's old club for money, influence, and control. As he requests this of Oswald, Falcone also bargains with Moroni for Oswald's life. Whilst both men continue to underestimate Penguin, his life is finally secured. However, Moroni provides his final thought to Gobblepot. You better hope the old man, Falcone, lives a long life. When he's gone, I'm coming for you. The GCPD finally identify Jarrah Crane as a former biology teacher. They discover his motives um, for his murders, that they're driven by the desire and obsession to conquer his fear that led to his wife's tragic death in a house fire. Jim and Harvey track him to an old derelict house. As Gerald and Jonathan flee the house, the confrontation results in a huge overdose of the fear serum by Jonathan, administered by the hands of his father, but overseen by a scarecrow that will come to haunt and be a motif for Jonathan's life to come, as he is left in a constant state of terror. Mm, yeah. Were you left in a constant state of terror by this episode? No, I can't say I was. However, I loved all the stuff to do with the Scarecrow. I thought right at the end, that Scarecrow all around the hospital bed, really, really, um, that was really terrifying. That was really well done. Really good, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. That would scare me if I was lying in a hospital bed with that coming at me from below the bed, from around the top of the headboard uh, yeah. and all that. That was really good. And I loved the motif of one of my points, the the scarecrow in, in the, the back field or the back garden mm-hmm. of the house where Jonathan and Gerald um, were kind of halt, 
we're all holed up in. And mm. I thought that was really good as well. I, I thought they did that really, really well. Yeah. But I don't think it was scary as such, the this episode. Okay, all right. Well, with that, I think we're on to our top five for this episode, um, which overall I enjoyed. I must say a, a good episode and good to have a two-parter for the first time really in the show. Yeah, a nice um, solid episode, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my first point is about the uh, is about the scares in this episode. Um, I loved the opening sequence to open it up with a direct follow up to last week. Even though Gerald Crane has gotten away with with the crime, essentially he's got he's escaped from Jim and from Harvey at the end of last week's episode. Uh, he's still on the uh, on, I suppose, on the search for some new organs uh, for harvesting some more from uh, in a really scary scene as the uh, the other teacher from the school arrives home to his apartment. In the dark, turns on the lights, and in the background you see what turns out to be Jonathan uh, Crane standing in the background of the scene. I think it's a really well shot scene, like something out of Insidious or something out of a of a, a good little scary horror film um, that you'd see at the moment. And then he hears a he hears a, a rattling at the door, and in comes uh, Gerald Crane dressed up with horns on his head for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, this Gerald's still up to his old tricks, and this time he's brought in his son as well. I don't... Were they zombies? Devils? Yeah. Vampires? It was really interesting to see what they did there, and I did like the whole flash of lightning. Mm. And you see the... Um, I think it was Jonathan silhouetted against the, the window, obviously, as the teacher comes in and is kind of putting his briefcase down and all that. That, yeah. that was really good, definitely. So that's yeah. a scene. I thought it was fantastic. It was a good opener to, to kind of bring you back in. It really felt like something that they should really have done at, at Halloween, maybe. <laughs> it feels like a weird thing to watch this in uh, around Easter time to see a, an episode that is uh, much more close to a, a, a horror Halloween episode, really. Um, well, the Scarecrow had its arms uh, stretched out. Very biblical. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, maybe that's the reason. But I agree. It definitely would have been, to me, more of a Halloween episode, certainly with the whole Scarecrow element to it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just that whole fear motif running throughout, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if, do you want to give us your first point about this? I presume it's something to do with the, the Scarecrow. <laughs> it is. Um I suppose my five points this week, apart from maybe one of them, are all to do with kind of couples, partnerships, mm-hmm. father-son relationships, that kind of thing. And I suppose my first one would be Gerald and Jonathan. And mm-hmm. I think you kind of brought it out here where we see um, Jonathan helping out his dad now. I think as well we see more of Jonathan. It was mainly um, Gerald in the previous episode, yeah. the fearsome Dr. Crane. Uh, and now we just begin to get a bit more information about Jonathan and also about Gerald's uh, motives uh, as well. And I really liked how, how they dealt uh, with that. I mean, I thought the whole inoculation of by Gerald of himself with this fear serum mm-hmm. and the the vision that he sees, the hallucination, maybe more appropriately, of his wife, his dead wife, coming down the stairs as they all burst into flames. I thought that was really well done. I thought it was really um, evoking of of why he's afraid and why he's driven um, himself to these depths in order to overcome it. Um, I also think I really like the dubiousness of why he's also administering it to his son. Mm. It, His son calls him out on it to say but i'm not afraid like you it's almost like he's forcing his own phobias and fears onto onto jonathan 
And that I find really, from a psychological level, really dark and complex. And I really enjoyed um, this interaction between the two, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And just to call out that scene where his wife comes down the stairs on fire, essentially, that at that moment really felt like something out of Constantine. It felt like one of the intros to the Constantine episodes or Supernatural, those kind of those kind of shows. It really felt like something different, something very different for Gotham. Absolutely. Um, a really well played scene and a really well, uh, really well put together. Uh, moment definitely and yeah the, the just the injection uh, i'm not a huge fan of needles myself as you probably know <laughs> uh but that scene where um where gerald injects himself and his eyes turn green and he gets the he, the eyes widen as well just a really well shot scene some good some good special effects they don't do special effects very often on the show it's usually quite practical effects and maybe some kind of cg work to enhance the city which we know about but not a huge amount of special effects like this so seeing seeing the effect that um, that the injection has on Gerald, I thought was fantastically done. No, yeah, exactly. I, I, I think as well. Then it comes to the whole, the title of the show and, and and the money shots where Jonathan is being injected, essentially overdosed with this fear serum, mm. uh, right at the end. Where in a sense, this is the origins of the Scarecrow. Um, mm. You know, this is where it begins that journey. I just the you know the motif of having the scarecrow there uh, whilst he's being injected by his dad um, again his dad almost forcing this this um injection of the the serum and um, is, is obsessed by by doing it and almost uh, Jonathan doesn't want this to happen and then it happens and again he just becomes overwrought with the the power of this serum mm. that's been injected and then you get the whole money shot of the scarecrow coming to life but even before that just the whole silhouette of that scarecrow in the field you know it's it's very um iconic and it was great to see yeah my only slight criticism if anything of it is, I wish we had seen more of Jonathan. Maybe he was always scared of scarecrows. Maybe that was his phobia. Mm. We didn't really get or understand um, whether he had any fears or phobias. It seemed to be his dad pushing them on yeah. to him uh, and forcing him to take this this serum. And ultimately, Jonathan takes on the persona of the scarecrow so it's not necessarily something that he is fearful of I, or this i'm not entirely sure okay. he takes it on he adopts it and in that sense to me it almost feels like it's a bit like um how for example christopher nolan portrayed batman and how uh, frank miller in um batman year one where he takes on bats these things that he was afraid of he takes them on and runs with him and becomes what he was afraid of. And to me, this is what what happens here with um, Jonathan Crane as well, ultimately. Mm. But here we see that he's afraid of them. So it, that I was unclear of, really. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish they had spent a bit more time with Jonathan Crane and finding out a bit more about him so that his backstory was really rooted properly. I just feel as though it wasn't rooted. And again, I think it was just that that injection under the Scarecrow, it was very condensed. I loved it. Mm -hmm. But again, it's one of those points that I've always had with Gotham is that sometimes some of the actions, some of the reasons why people are going to be who they are in the future are hugely condensed down. Mm. 
And I think this is one, given the bad guy involved, Jonathan Crane, because he was so central in the Nolan films, he's got much bigger, I think, presence in the world of, of Batman and Gotham now. I would have liked to have seen that a bit, little less condensed, more spread out like they're doing with the Riddler and with Penguin. But who knows? He may come back and he may be in some future episodes. I really hope so because I really liked um, the guy, Charlie Tannen, who who played yeah. um, Jonathan Crane here. I thought it was really good uh, in the role. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, 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 too, I do understand the point, especially given that we had two episodes here, uh, one with mostly Gerald Crane and the other one with a little bit more of Jonathan. But Jonathan just seemed to be pleading with his father that he didn't want to. He would do the experiments if that's what his father wanted him to. But he still wanted to do them under, I suppose, safe circumstances. He definitely didn't want an entire needle full of uh, full of fear toxin, I'm going to call it, uh, injected into him. Potentially, that is the reason why, you know, he's probably about 14, I think. Um, if I did the maths correctly, they talked about his mother dying about five to six years ago when he was eight. So he's about he's about 13 or 14, uh, the character. So it's still his formative years. He's still able to develop these kind of fears. And I would definitely develop that kind of fear underneath a scarecrow that's breathing fire at me as my as my father stuffs tons of fear toxin into my blood i understand that but you're right there should have been potentially he could have worked on a farm at night and had a bad moment with scarecrows before having this scene of uh of him being injected underneath the scarecrow that could have formed his fear i suppose yeah. something like that some additional scene i think so i i liked what they did here again it was just it seemed to be too condensed for me i would have liked to have seen it played out over a longer period mm. i would and if i'm totally honest i wish Gerald's crane hadn't been shot. I would have loved to have seen that interaction mm. between him and Jonathan more because I actually think that's where Jonathan was getting his neurosis from. And mm. um, that no, Dad, you're the one with the problem. Calm down. And um, I don't have the same fears as you. I'm kind of scared by what you're doing. Like there was a really interesting relationship there. Yeah, and it's a shame that's gone. I'd love to have seen him. Uh, Gerald Crane get put into Arkham, say, mm. and then Jonathan maybe recovers or something, um, or doesn't even get injected like that, but you have the Scarecrow motif, you know, goes and visits him, you see a few of those, then you have a classic Arkham breakout where Gerald um, escapes with other inmates, comes to Jonathan, you know, and maybe then you get the overdose and the continuation of that experimentation or, mm. or you could do it in a whole range of different ways. I mean, I'm just kind of really here, just off the top of my head, saying, "Oh, maybe they could have done it like this." But yeah. ultimately, is I wish it had just been drawn out a bit longer, and I wish Gerald had um, survived. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it's probably my big kind of down point for the episode. I do have I'm not, this isn't one of my main points, but one of my big down points for the episode is, regardless, this is quite an intelligent man. He's um, he's a he's a doctor um, of biology. You know, quite an intelligent man. Yes, he's injected himself with, with the toxin to cure himself of fear. But when he starts shouting at Jim and uh, Harvey that he's not afraid, he's not scared of their bullets, <laughs> then they shoot him and kill him. He kind of should have been scared of their bullets. He's an intelligent man to know that a piece of metal shot at a high, at high velocity into your body will kill you, regardless of what the toxin's done to him. Exactly. It's it, not fear. It's it's idiot toxin, right? <laughs> exactly. Like It cured him of his fear and... And it didn't remove his common sense, yes. you know. And I think that was a crazy line 
put in there. You know, you have this quite calculating man who is, you know, has thought a lot about how he can harvest adrenal glands at the height of them producing, um, you know, cortisol or whatever it is mm-hmm. that causes that fear response, the, the fight or flight response. Yeah. And all of a sudden, then, I'm not afraid of your guns and... I mean, it's a, it's just a, I think it's a lazy line to be honest. And I mean, he's still a clever guy. Yeah. He's still a doctor of biology, and he hasn't lost his common sense and he hasn't lost his reasoning that bullets will kill you. Yeah. It's not about fear. You don't have to be afraid, but you do have to realize that. Uh, and but maybe that was the point as well. I was thinking, yeah, there there is kind of two options for the line in my head. It's either he's not afraid of their bullets because his legacy will live on now that he's given the the toxin to to Jonathan, or that he's not afraid to die because he's he's now happy with, um, I suppose, happy that he wasn't the one responsible for his wife's death. That fear is gone from him. But that wasn't said. The line that was said was, "I'm not afraid of your bullets," you know, and that's a silly line from a very intelligent man. And maybe there was a third one that it's removed his fear to such a great extent that he is just walking at them. But the line just seems sloppy yeah. and seems out of context with who that man is and mm-hmm. um, being a biology teacher. And as I say, it removed his fear, it inoculated him against fear. It didn't remove his common sense or reasoning. All right, with that, I'm going to go on to my, my second point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's going to be a short one. It's going to be a short one because it is connected quite uh, quite heavily with Gerald Crane. The concept of fear as an evolutionary fault, I think, is a fantastic concept. I don't know. It's something um, I, I'm, I'm always intrigued by science and how scientists will work out a problem and work towards a solution. But I love this concept for the biology instructor or biology teacher who's decided that what he wants to fix is the evolutionary fault in human beings that we've created fear as a mechanism to deal with uh, with difficult situations. And he wants to create a, a cure for this evolutionary fault. I think that's a really interesting concept or an interesting idea um, that the writers have come up with for this episode, personally. I just think, it's a, I don't know, it stood out to me as something really interesting that uh, that someone would have this have this idea. Maybe that's why ultimately he did walk towards Jim and Harvey with a um, you know a rain of bullets coming down on him is because the fear that idea of do you fight or do you flee mm. um, had been removed from him by his injections yeah. uh, and maybe that's where the writers were coming from with that previous line. But again, that whole idea of fear, mm-hmm. just the whole idea of harvesting, being able to harvest fear from the adrenal gland yeah. is a really good i think mechanism and storytelling mechanism for for um the cranes and for the scarecrow it's a really really um good idea yeah. it's really like you know when people inject themselves with adrenaline and you know it elevates the heartbeat and and so on and helps to um sort of resuscitate you almost and and, and make you more heightened mm. um, I, I I really did like that idea certainly yeah yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's that's my second point John what's yours my second point was then it's the Falcone and Maroni trait really mm. um, in in Oswald and how they went about uh, doing this and primarily because I think there's a really good line here that just showed that these two men still 
underestimate Oswald Cobblepot. Yeah. They still underestimate um, the Penguin. Um, and it, it, it was all this kind of idea that, um, you know, despite this, they do view him ha- as being an asset. It, it's that Moroni sees him as an asset that has been lost to him, a prime asset, um, cut, is what Moroni describes Oswald as. Mm. But he's lost him, and, and what he thought he was providing to to him i mean remember only a few episodes ago he was the golden goose mm-hmm. the you know honk, honk. honk, honk. and um, and now he's been betrayed falcone you know obviously trading with moroni to keep him alive and um, just shows you what he value he puts on on oswald cobblepot mm-hmm. yet they continue to underestimate um who he is what he's about and what he's doing Falcone, I think, makes a, he knows his place in life. You know, he knows he's clever. A freakish little man like him will never be the boss. Mm-hmm. And he, he comes out with these lines. And again, it's pure underestimation of this character. And I think despite where he's come from being the umbrella boy for, for Fish in the first episode, there is still all of this, in a sense disrespect that Oswald is getting and mm. even just Jim's refusal to take uh, Oswald's invitation is probably seen as a slight by, by Oswald yeah. and he, he's still subject to all of this and I think it really came out in this trade-off between um, Moroni and Falcone. Yeah, it's a really nice little call-out. I think just you, you've made the big point, you know, in a city as Gotham is right now in this TV show uh, at the time that it's taking place. Freakish little men like Penguin will not be leaders of the families of, of Mafia. But in the time of Batman, freakish people will be taking over the city and be segmenting it up amongst themselves. You know, that's that's the whole purpose exactly. of this show. If you thought if you thought the show didn't center around the Penguin and didn't center around his story, it absolutely does. And Falcone's just called that out and said, this freakish little man right now will not lead our gangs. He will be a second in command. He will give us all the information. He's a very intelligent person but he will not take over from us right now in this version of Gotham. Yeah, and the other thing I liked about this was just the whole Falcone and Moroni. It was proper sort of godfather Italian dons, mm. you know, walking around this lovely mansion that uh, Falcone has. Gorgeous building, isn't it? Yeah, the inside of it, amazing. Um, you know, it's all refined and pristine, and then it really comes down to the nitty-gritty and the dirty sort of... Um, business of it all and there you see Judge Turnbull who's mm. been used as, as the trading card by Falcone to to bring Moroni around to, to so that he doesn't go after and kill Oswald um, you know, but they're there and he's probably, poor Judge Turnbull is going to probably never be seen again. Yeah, so, I think that's an interesting one because it, 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 it does call it out, Moroni wants his head on a plate that's what he wants Falcone once again is taking the smarter route, and I, I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me if, if you don't agree, but it, it feels like Falcone is actually saying, "Do you know what? It'd be even better. We've just stolen this guy who was out on a date with a young man. We've stolen him. We've got video footage of him now being uh, in an S and M situation, I guess. Yeah. Um, we're now going to be able to use this guy who's known as being a, a pit bull in in as a, of a judge who puts away criminals. We're going to be able to use him now." Uh, because we've got something on him, I think. I think Falcone's decision is to keep him alive, not to kill him, 
and now to have something to hang over them and blackmail them for uh, things that they want them to do to get some Moroni's men off or get some of Falcone's men off. Kind of like Judge Bam Bam, where he yeah. will simply put all the stamps and sign these warrants for corrupt members of the GCPD. Falcone and Moroni, in a sense, now have have got enough rope to hang this guy with mm. if he ever decides to go um, and become that pit bull towards them again. They can show the footage. I mean, the the lady in the leather, mm. uh, the ladies of the leather, she, you know, she just say, smile at the camera. The yeah. photo's taken. She's, it's all there. She's certainly not a lady, though. She's certainly not. <laughs> um, and they have him owned. Mm-hmm. And he's another piece in their power jigsaw around the institutions of Gotham. Yeah, and I do like the delight of Moroni when he realizes what Falcone is arranging. He seems absolutely overjoyed that Falcone is, is this this evil, I suppose, in a, yeah. in a way. Um, and I think then that all comes to a head um, with maybe a bit of a premonition or a bit of a prediction for the future where Moroni... Um, comes into the club right at the end mm. where um, Fisher's old club has Oswald Cobblepot pour out a glass of champagne for him. You know, this is Oswald's big opening. Um, and he just kind of quietly and threateningly, you know, as the champagne is poured out, as it begins to spill out over the edge to say, I won't come after you, but you better hope that Falcone lives a long, healthy life, because as soon as he's gone, you're out the picture as well. Such a great threat. True to a T to Moroni as a character, you know, who's just really violence as his first name, really. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Really good. And again, John Doman, David um, Zayas, really, really good as these two big heavyweights in Gotham. Yeah. Love them. Every time they're on uh, the screen, I absolutely love them. Yeah, I agree. And, and and again, I do like the threat, as you say, to Oswald, because it's really calling out the fact Moroni doesn't have a deal with Oswald. There's no deal here to keep Cobblepot alive. The deal is with Falcone. It's not with Cobblepot. The minute Falcone's gone, so is Oswald. Nothing's changed between the two of them, but he's now accepted that he has a deal for protection with Moroni. So yeah, great scene. Really, really enjoyed it. So then, what's your third case point? My third point, and I think I might probably be stealing one from you, because I think everybody who watched this episode <laughs> has to have has to have loved this scene, which is Oswald and Ed meet for the first time. It does. I think this is where our two points combine. May the power of case points combine. <laughs> We're going to play the meeting for you right now. Can I help you? I don't think so. Can you? (laughs) What do you want? What I want. The poor have, the rich need, and if you eat it, you'll die. Is this... Are you asking me a riddle? Do you like riddles? No. So do you give up? (laughs) Friend, look at... Nothing. The answer is nothing. The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it... Who are you? Edward. Nigma. I know who you are. And you know that you're standing too close. Did you know that male emperor penguins keep their eggs warm by balancing them on their feet? Isn't that neat? Nice to meet you, sir. Keep moving. 
Will do. <laughs> Such a great scene. Such a great scene. Really, really well played, I thought. Um, we... Some great interaction between these two master criminals, in a sense. Yep. Um, or at least one of them a future master criminal. Yeah, well, one of them's just had his first victim last week in, uh, in episode 14, so... Uh... So pretty likely that they're that they're on the same path, but having the two of them meet together is great. I love that the I suppose the kind of inquisitive nature of Ed Nigma when he sees Oswald in the in the GCPD, he cannot help but follow him and talk to him. He's getting his opportunity finally to meet and talk to the penguin, you know. He seems genuinely excited. I love the uh, the two riddles that he poses. One is what do I want from you? Nothing. And the other one is uh, is not really a riddle, I suppose. It's it's uh, it's about the emperor penguin and balancing yeah. his. The male balances the the eggs on his feet to protect them from the cold. Um, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good. But again, love the reaction from Oswald as as you heard in the clip there, which is basically, you know who I am, and you're standing too close to me. <laughs> uh, hello, sir. Nice to meet you. Walk away. Um, yeah, really good. I just think how it plays out was really well captured mm. in the scene. I think um, it's really an iconic meeting. And throughout the whole of it, the sense that the two of them somehow can sense that they're similar uh-huh. but different as well is really well played. That, you know, they are cut from the same cloth, but one is in the GCPD and maybe is hiding it better than another one who is on the other side of the fence with the mobsters but again is hiding something within the organisation that he's in there's these two people hiding bits about themselves in the organisation that they're working in, one on the right side Mm. of the law the other on the wrong side and I loved that, I loved how the whole scene was captured, this sense of knowing one another and a shared understanding of who the other is um, I thought was excellent, I just thought it was so well played between these two characters, who again are superb Again, another two uh, members of the cast that every time they're on screen, I just want to see what they do. And I, I think Corey Michael Smith has just over the course of the season so far, he is getting better and better and better. And to me, he is just a perfect Riddler. Yeah, these last Brilliant. three episodes particularly have been really, really good. His relationship with, with uh, Christine Kringle has been great. The severed body parts to get rid of the medical examiner that we talked about last week. It's fantastic. And this scene here is great um, just to have the meeting of the two of them. And I love the reaction from Oswald again. Makes it feel like he now knows who Ed is. And if Ed can do something for him in the future, they may be friends. But right now, this guy can't do anything for him. He's just a creepy guy who asks riddles, uh, essentially, to, to Oswald. And he treats him as such. Walk away. Don't deal with me anymore. I don't want to deal with you anymore. You're creeping me out step away from me. <laughs> I mean, another, just a quick side note on uh, Ed Nigma. Like, he has that great uh, line again with Jim and Harvey in the room where he says, um, the new medical examiner, Jim's girlfriend, she smells nice. And mm-hmm. Harvey comes out with this great line as well. You see competition already, yeah. this idea that he likes her. And we've mentioned this before. She has an interesting phrase as well which is fascinating mm-hmm. as well. So maybe the two of them now are getting into close proximity. Will something happen here? 
I think it would go against um, the comic book canon, I think. Mm. But nonetheless, I like the two um, of them being together. But he likes it. He likes it. It's not the same um, relationship as with the former medical examiner. So I love that. But again, creepy. She smells nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Always good. Um, that was my uh, that was my third point. John, do you have anything more on Ed and Oswald? Or no, I, I, it was exactly the same point, really. It was that meeting of the master criminals in the GCPD. It was such a well-played scene and done so well um, that I think we've covered uh, mm-hmm. that point as well. So I suppose I can go on to my um, fourth case mm-hmm. point, really. Yeah. And this is Alfred and Bruce. Mm-hmm. And the bonding, there's a kind of a fatherly son or guardian son bonding coming here. We go from the young Bruce Wayne wanting to continue some of the traditions that he'd done with his father previously, where they had gone out uh, once a year, you know, hiking in in the mountains and the hills around Wayne uh, Manor and Gotham to see sunrise and to camp out and to really have a father-son kind of bonding exercise, you know. And he does not want Alfred to come with him. He still sees it as exclusively um, for for him and his dad. And then you see the whole emotional response to being there, finally confronted with the the kerns, the, the stones that they'd placed on top of the hill, him mm. and his dad in the past. And that emotional response from the young uh, Bruce Wayne to that. And then eventually, you know, he has his accident uh, and he is stranded out in, in, in the wilderness, in the countryside. And Alfred comes and helps him in a way not physically or directly Mm -hmm. but he's there he's just there for him he doesn't help him up the side of the hill after he after uh bruce has has bound his leg and has struggled his way back up to the top of the hill to try and get back to wayne manor and he hasn't done any of that he hasn't called the police or a search party he simply knows where to go and he's waited for him, and when he's there, they just click together, and you go from then Bruce taking on board and realising that, I think, that Alfred is his new father, or at least not a replacement father, but is the guardian that he needs um, right now, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, love this scene, particularly the the, the element between Alfred and Bruce, um, where, where Alfred really teaches them strength. He's becoming... More of a, a kind of a mix of a friend, a father, and a mentor. You know, they're 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 all three different Definitely. pieces, I suppose, of Alfred. Um, it is it is about teaching him strength, giving him a cup of tea. Obviously, always important for a for a British butler to do that. Um, but I love the uh, the moment when when Bruce comes up and goes, "This is hell out here." And Alfred says to him that, you know, this is better than 99% of this, 99% of the places where I used to sleep. This is cushy in comparison. Um, a great little, great little moment between the two of them. But David Mazous in the scene where he has that moment of realization that he doesn't have a father anymore. He can never do this anymore. He can never climb up the mountain with a stone and plant it in the same place with, that he used to do every year with his father. I think it's heartbreaking. And David Mazous again does a great job with that scene. He's it's got a, great emotional range. He really, he? really does. Yeah. Um, such a great young actor mm-hmm. I think um, and it's something that Sean Pertwee has said as well in, in our interview mm-hmm. um, that we did with him um, 
in in the podcast interview that we did. Yeah. Um, I think as well, Alfred's lines when Bruce finally comes up over the hill and there's the campfire is roaring, the look on Alfred's face. I think the really good exchange. I think that here's a few here. Hello there, Master Bruce. Well, you certainly took your time. What did you stop off for a pint of pint on the way up, did you? How long have you been there? Well, I don't know, about, about an hour. Just when you started climbing up that really nasty hill. Well, thanks for your help. Yeah, I never got you down there, did I? Come here. I'm cold. I'm tired and my ankle's sprained. Oh. Ah. I just want to go home. You want to go home? Or do you want to wait and watch the sunrise? Like you did with your dad. Well, Alfred, you can only stay if you think you can handle it. If I can handle it? Mate, this place is positively cushy compared to some of the places I've slept at. Cup of tea, you cheeky monkey. It's just really sarcastic and it's but in a in a nice way. It it's kind of it it's what took you so long, you know, and you stop off for a pint halfway up and, and a pie. <laughs> you know, pie. real just really nice warm words of harsh comfort, I think. It's mm-hmm. kind of like doesn't help him, but he and he, he doesn't tell him to sort of whinge or complain it's kind of just to get on with it and it's something i can really um relate to i think uh, from alfred i think it's such a great um relationship that they have as you say yeah yeah really good i guess it's on to my fourth case point uh big one for me this week because i had no idea how they were going to do this character uh fish mooney um this storyline fish is fab uh, i think this week uh, as I say, I didn't have any idea what they were going to do with her. Last week, we ended with her about to be attacked on a boat. I thought it was going to be a friend of hers. Uh, I thought it was going to be somebody that she was running in, and then would be, would be a big hug, and it would be where she was actually intended to go, intending to go to, and intended to stay where, while she was away from Gotham. Turns out she's been captured. We yeah. don't know by who yet. Um, but I love that how in this episode it shows her steps to becoming a leader again, and done quite quickly. Um, yeah. You know, she wakes up, two guys are standing over her about to, I presume the in, the intention here is to rape her or to, to beat her at least, um, to take ownership of her as their, their partner. And she's told that essentially the first person that attacks a woman is killed very quickly by the second person that attacks a woman. That's, that's the, uh, that's what happens in this, in this underground hell, essentially. So Fish stands up, walks over to them and says, the first one of you to attack me will die like that. The second one that, that, to attack me will die slowly. Once again, you have Fish Mooney asserting her power and showing how powerful a character she is and can be. You know, any anybody in that situation, if I was faced in that situation, no matter how strong I think I am, I think I would probably be cowering in a corner. I wouldn't be standing up for myself like she does. And I think throughout the whole episode, every time it comes back to Fish, I'm really interested to see what's happening with her. And by the end of the by the end of this episode, she's taken over. She now owns every person that's in that prison is, or in that basement or whatever it is, they're all now working for fish. They are all doing what she's telling them to do. Now they're organized. Now they can do something. And the episode ends out with uh, with a person being thrown back in with no eyes, essentially. So we have no idea what's going on. We don't know who's in control of this place. Um, 
but I think it's a fascinating little element for Fish that she's got her own story completely away from Gotham now that I didn't expect her to have. No, definitely. I mean, I think, again, it's really good character development for, for Fish. I mean, we saw her um, character sort of mixing it in with the mobsters, you know, up till the end of season 10. I think since then, we've seen her true metal, yeah. you know, where and we've said this previously, you know, she was tortured. Uh, we've seen her on the run. Mm-hmm. She's constantly got fire in her belly to come on and bounce back immediately. And I think this is a really good character development um, of her. So I, I agree with you. I really like um, everything I've seen here. The the main thing, there's still some unanswered questions, which I presume will come out later on mm-hmm. in some of the um, future episodes. You know, who attacked the ship? Where are they at the moment? Yeah. Who is in charge of this, this facility? Mm-hmm. At the moment, these are questions that we don't have the answer to. Yeah. And I'm sure that they will come out eventually. Um, so there's still a lot of intrigue there then around this new situation that Fish uh, finds herself in, which is great. Yeah, 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 I'm perfectly fine with that. And I think this is one of the points I'd had about some of the earlier episodes. I don't need answers to questions that are posed every single episode. It kind of led to the problem that you had earlier on with Jonathan Crane, where you got an answer to how he becomes the Scarecrow in a very quick scene of, you know, probably about a minute of the episode is how he becomes the Scarecrow. Um, if that had been played out over a couple of episodes, it would have been better for you. In the same way here, where we've got Fish, we now know something's happening with her. We now know she's been captured, and we now know that she's become a leader of this group who are in captivity, I, I presume. But let's let us let us have that play out over five or six episodes, or three or four episodes. Let's see what happens and who's behind it over the, over the course of a couple of episodes. So I'm hoping there is much more depth given in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and definitely don't blink when you're around fish. I mean, that shift to the neck um, to Mace, mm. who was the apparent leader of this group of people in the basement, really just out of the blue, quick fire. Blink, and you missed it. Mm-hmm. Loved that. Absolutely um, and totally brutal and efficient in what she wants to achieve uh, and when she wants to do it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic stuff. And um, that's my fourth point. Uh, John, have you got a fifth? I do have a fifth and it's um it's a short point. It's the club. Mm. Um you know, we see a rebranding of Fisher's Club. <laughs> Away goes the um fish, which I did like the neon sign of that. I thought that was a really cool um neon sign mm. the the image of the you know the sort of eaten fish with the bones and so on yeah. that's really good but replaced by an umbrella mm-hmm. and the club being called oswald's yeah. and not the iceberg lounge so this is an interesting development for me that it's been called oswald's mm-hmm. um, and we have an umbrella now it also seems to have taken a slight change in direction as well. I did see a lot of punk um, people in there instead of the usual kind of jazz hands type of people. Um, from <laughs> Jazz hands or jazz fans? The jazz fans and the jazz hands. <laughs> you, there is never, you always get jazz hands with jazz <laughs> and jazz yeah. fans. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting tack. Part of me wishes it was the Iceberg Lounge, but maybe that is a bit too soon. So I presume that this is going to fail as a club, the the new rebranding. First of all, 
it's got an umbrella neon sign, which I like the motif, but will that work? It's mm. obviously not attracting the same clientele. With the punks now, um, with yeah. the punks and now playing... instead of the you know the jazz fans, and yeah. um, and they're playing the Stranglers song, the cover version of the Stranglers song, "No More Heroes Anymore" is in there exactly. Um, and yeah. I think you know Falcone was quite clear that that club made money, and that money helped gain influence, and that influence ultimately leads to maintaining control. Mm-hmm. And this seems to me that. For an opening night or a grand reopening, the club is not that packed. Jim certainly wasn't there. Mm. We've seen that. And it gets gatecrashed by Moroni, who kind of really is fairly threatening in the middle of the club, which surely would scare away punters. So I have a feeling that this club is going to fail, and it might not be around by the end of this season. And maybe it's recalled Iceberg Lounge. I hope it does become Iceberg Lounge in in future episodes or maybe for next season at some point. But I do think it will ultimately change from being this new club or called Oswald's yeah. as well, which just sounds like a real diner. Yeah, it does. It does. And one of the big things, I presume, and again, we don't know the, the backstory of Fish, but I presume the reason why Fish's club is known as Fish's is because she's quite a well-known character in the underground. She's quite a well-known person for all of her dealings that she has. Oswald's not a well-known person. He's always been in in the background. He's been pulling the strings, in a sense, for a lot of people. But you can't name a club after that, you know? Oswald's not exactly the most attractive name for a club. No offence to any Oswalds that may be listening. Um, But that, that particular... Uh, name won't work. The as you say, the style having punks in the in the bar dancing to the stranglers isn't uh, isn't usually conducive to a good evening out sitting around drinking some cocktails and drinking some champagne. So, you know, it won't work in its current format. So I wonder I wonder what will happen. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to fail. I think uh, Oswald does have some knowledge in the, in running a business. So we'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, but maybe it'll get retooled and as you say, become the Iceberg Lounge. Ah, uh, hopefully. Um. So Derek, what's your fifth point? My final point is uh, is about Jim and Leslie Tompkins. Jim mm. Gordon and Leslie Tompkins. I, I'm loving their relationship. The patter between the two of them when they just come back from their third date, isn't it? Yeah, three um, dates, Jim and Leslie. Yeah, yeah just the, the, the patter between the two of them when they're having their discussion, you know, about uh, where Jim says, I haven't been to your apartment yet. And Leslie says, you know, what? particular room in my apartment are you interested in and then they go back and forth on the kitchen it's too small the sitting room it's too dark the bedroom oh you'd like the bedroom but not this time i've got a new job tomorrow i love that uh that that conversation between the two of them it's really interesting yeah and i think she also says um and just throws in the line you know no no case notes this time like just really yeah, nice he says that. yeah he, yeah he's right he's oh, it's, yeah it's a really good little um little nod to the previous episode it's a really good kind of bit of sort of banter between the two of them mm-hmm. and intimacy between the two of them um i think which i think is really good as well um but then it all seems to get a bit awkward i think a little bit from jim's point like he doesn't like that cocktail mix of um romance and uh their work relationship he suddenly kind of seems to put on the the brakes a bit or just the the barrier goes up at least in the gcpd yeah. like 
you know, don't touch me. Um, and I do quite like Harvey's little uh, Harvey. response as well. Harvey is hilarious. He's, ne- he's <laughs> just his needling of Jim again, like he did it the whole time when Jim was with Barbara. He was uh, he was constantly needling him, going, "She's way too high maintenance for you. You'll never keep a girl like that." Now he's with Leslie, and he's going, "Oh, well, now she's in the office working with you. You're never going to keep her. That's the worst thing to happen. It's going to end in tears, you know." And it's getting to Jim this time because he can't get away from both Leslie and Harvey. You know, they're they're connected now all the time. Um, so quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting relationship this time, I think. Um, but I love the two of them together. I think it's great. And I think, you know, we, we've talked about it before. We talked about Barbara and Jim's relationship, something that, you know, some... Some fans aren't usually happy with the with their with their relationship and and how Barbara particularly has been portrayed in the show and we've talked about how she's been portrayed in the show. Yeah. One of the big difficulties here is you never got to see Jim and Barbara getting together and learning why they liked each other and learning why they fell for each other. You saw the mid relationship and never really got any more than that. Saw it go downhill really. Um, it was a very simply drawn um character, very simply drawn relationship in the fact that you know it showed the two of them in love and then fall out of love and that's it so you they have the opportunity here with leslie tompkins to show the reason why jim would fall for her number one she looks like maria mccarran so uh you know that's that's a that's that's a good starter for 10 really um secondly she's a uh she's a good laugh she's ha- she has fun with him she's really interested in the type of work that he does she comes from a similar background to him she's worked in a similar type of company as him so yeah you see the two of them yeah. really build up the relationship so Again, regardless of her being, as I called her before, nerd gold, um, you know that that actress who plays who plays Leslie Tompkins. Regardless of her being nerd gold, she's also got some great characteristics that match Jim Gordon. You know, whereas Barbara never got that opportunity or was never shown to have those characteristics that would match him, other than being an attractive woman. You know? Yeah, no, exactly. I, it definitely as well. I think adds some context to Jim and and uh, Barbara's relationship as well. Mm. It adds that kind of context as to why their relationship didn't work as well because you didn't see this as you say. Mm. You, you it was almost like maybe it had gotten stale. I mean it's things that you infer from how he behaves around um Leslie Tompkins, but nonetheless it helps to add that context then to that previous relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think that adds then a bit more depth to it, which you didn't unfortunately get at this at the time. And again, we have another prediction here in the mm-hmm. show. As Harvey says, office romances always end in disaster. Yeah. So is the writing on the wall for Jim and Leslie now that she's started as the medical examiner in the precinct and yeah, um, that it's gonna come to some dreadful and devastating end whether at the hands of the mobster or whether it's just because office romances don't work out yeah or at the hands of enigma who could be becoming very jealous of jim for the uh, woman who spells nice well exactly <laughs> uh, that's my fifth point uh, yeah, john so have you got another, any other points or any other notes on the episode i think my main note that i have really is i thought we were going to see or catch a glimpse of a possible bat cave when um, um david mazuz fell down the the hill i actually did think that he was going to find refuge in a cave or he was going to maybe fall down into a sort of a sinkhole that would feed into then the caves that go under the the wayne manor estate mm. so i thought that was where we were maybe just going to get an, a little um easter egg of the bat cave now, it didn't happen, but 
given that it's Easter, it would have been great for that too. It would have been yummy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. I didn't, it didn't really cross my mind, um, but I absolutely see what you mean. I think possibly just the scene, as I said, just before he falls, where which I thought was quite an emotional scene uh, that Devin Mazous played, where he again realizes he doesn't have a father to do this kind of activity with, and is angry at his father for for leaving. Really, that's the the real. A, a real Bruce Wayne moment. If you if you're disappointed in something not happening, you get angry. You know that's that's uh, yep, that's definitely. basically it. And then he falls down the hill. Um, yeah, maybe there wasn't that moment of pause. Maybe I just didn't didn't notice it. But yeah, now that you bring it up, it would have been a really interesting touch. We hopefully at some point we will get him falling down a well and getting surrounded by bats, or as you say, falling into a cave that is that is the opening to the Batcave. Something that would have a bigger connection to the Batman side. Yeah, I mean, it didn't even need to have bats for me. Mm-hmm. I would have been more than happy if he just sought refuge from inclement weather or something like that <laughs> um, in in this cave, which could possibly have been um, the start of maybe the young Bruce Wayne exploring these caves as a young kid. Mm-hmm. And then as he gets further and further in or into a new section of the cave, he comes across bats maybe in a season two or a season three thing or something like that. Yeah. You don't need to have bats straight up front there immediately. But I just just thought, oh, wouldn't that have been a nice little touch to have sort of introduced the, the caves under Wayne Manor um, at this moment in time um, but it didn't happen and that's fine as well it, it, it was just a little thing that kind of sprung into my mind after the episode mm-hmm. yeah no interesting interesting a couple of tiny notes for me i did mention earlier on the uh the great strangler song that's used in this episode no more heroes i think that's partially to do with the fact that oswald a villain is starting to take over he's starting to become bigger in the city of gotham a lot of the heroes are gone. This is there are no more heroes anymore in Gotham. There's loads of villains essentially, um, so I thought that was an interesting choice for for a song. Um, it will be our outro to this episode because I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one other one. Uh, did you notice the uh, the final bit of interaction between Leslie and Jim in this episode? That Leslie bought tickets to the circus. And what lives yes. in circuses, John? The Flying Graysons. Yes, I believe. And clowns <gasps> and possibly jokers. Mm. So there's my Joker watch for this week. Alright, just had to play the theme again because we haven't played it in a couple <laughs> of weeks. Um, but yeah, they're going off to the circus potentially to see some clowns and some uh, and some flying Graysons. And we do know from our Joker Watch special mm-hmm. that the Joker turns up in the form of Jerome in the next episode. Mm, yes, that's going to be really interesting. So that's the next episode, The Blind Fortune Teller, episode 16 of Gotham, which we'll be returning for next week. So with that, on to our feedback. Fascinating. Fascinating. So our first bit of feedback this week comes from John DeGroyther on Twitter. Uh, he says, nice show, guys, a Gotham TV podcast. I've been enjoying it on my way to work in the morning, uh, just delving into the back catalogue of episodes. Thanks very much, John. Always good to hear from a listener. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's nice to um, hear that people are enjoying it all the time. So that's yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah. And just a, just a note for anybody who isn't listening to some of our back episodes. Um, some of the stuff that we have covered before the show started, we covered the three uh, Nolan films. 
and uh, we covered uh, Batman Year One. We covered a bunch of comics as well. We covered Gotham Central, which I absolutely love as a spoiler for some of our reviews, but uh, really, really enjoyable. I know you really enjoy them as well, John. Yeah, we've looked at in the downtime between um, episode 10 and episode 11 here in Ireland. In two podcasts, we have looked at Hush uh, by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee, Mm -hmm. which is a great um, story arc there as well. So we have plenty of other um, episodes in our back catalogue if you want to listen to them. We also have obviously got our interviews as well from uh, New York Comic Con um, in October last year, Mm -hmm. but also our uh, interviews with... um, uh, Victoria Cartagena and Andrew Stewart-Jones, who play uh, Renny Montoya and Christopher Allen, and also then our round table with those um, two members of the cast of Gotham and with uh, our friends from Legends of Gotham, and then also um, our recent interview with Sean Pertwee, who plays Alfred, which was a great interview, really good fun speaking mm-hmm. with him and chatting with him whilst we were doing that. So more than welcome to check out uh, those uh those podcasts so thank you john for for the comment it was really really nice thank you so another piece of feedback we have received comes from daniel uh, detective daniel butcher um he says hello detectives um hello there detective i hope you're uh, doing doing fine and well uh, mm-hmm. over this easter um he goes i continue to love the awkward romance between gordon and tompkins does this mean that barbara and jim are officially allowed to see other people and where is jim sleeping does he have another apartment mm. um, he also goes on to say this was probably one of my favourite supervillain arcs in, in a while for once it was the creepies and not the Gotham underworld that kept my attention mm-hmm. I think it's important here just to quickly mention Daniel is talking about the Scarecrow arc in terms of both episodes here not just um, one or the other or of the two episodes mm-hmm. And finally, he goes, so Bruce Wayne uses a bat because it scares him. Is Johnny Crane, as an adult, doing the same thing, using what terrifies him to control others? Mm. Um, From Agent Daniel, obviously from Welcome to Level 7. Really interesting points. Um, It's certainly something that um, I kind of noticed, this idea that maybe he uses what scares him to... um, to scare other people and to use it as his motif in the same way that Bruce Wayne uses the the bat, so that's a really good point. I think it's it's interesting to see that that similarity is also being picked out by other people as well. Definitely, yeah, I totally agree. I think we're on the same page, really, as Daniel uh, on this on this point. Um, where's Jim sleeping? Um, I think I think he's sleeping at the GCPD, isn't he? Isn't that what the that's the called out when Leslie uh, bumps into him after his shower uh, when he's wearing his. Uh, his wife beater, as he calls it himself. Um, his OC white vest. His OC white vest. Yeah, I think he's sleeping at the GCPD. So, uh, yeah. But... Yeah, I think he's still sleeping at the GCPD. He's certainly handed in the keys to Barbara's apartment mm-hmm. into the the fruit bowl, yeah. and we kind of aware he hasn't been back to Leslie Tompkins for a night of passion just yet. Yes. Um. So. I think he's still sleeping in the locker room. Yeah, but I guess, I guess that's a pretty good point. Maybe that's the reason why he's so excited to see her apartment, because he just wants somewhere to sleep other than in GCPD. Maybe that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then I would suspect then Barbara and Jim are officially allowed to see other people. Mm, yeah. Jim certainly is doing that anyway. That's true. <laughs> I think once you hand back your keys to your, to your apartment, you're probably broken up then, aren't you? Yeah. And are, I... they, are they just on a break? I think they're broken up. And Barbara, of course, as far as we're aware, is only really seeing her parents at the moment. That's true. That's true. You know? Um, and then 
I agree. I think this is a really good villain arc um, for this episode. I do, again, just wish it had been drawn out uh, a bit further. Certainly because I really like um, the Skurko. I think with having him as sort of a central um, and consistent theme throughout the Dark Knight trilogy, it's some... It's it's one of the the characters or villains of Batman that probably more recently has had a higher profile, uh, you know, along with Bane and Joker and Ra's al Ghul as such, uh, because of that mainstream uh, use within the the Dark Knight trilogy. So mm-hmm. I was really pleased to see um, that they were looking at his origins and his um, genesis, but um, I would just wish it had been. A bit drawn out, which is weird to say, given it was a two-parter, of course. But. Yeah. Thanks again for your feedback, Daniel. Good to hear from you, as always. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much, Daniel. And with that, on to the news. In a shock news item, we have actual news um we've not had news for a while now this is dc connected uh, news to do with the tv show preacher based on the vertigo comics imprint which is part of dc and mm-hmm. hence why we're covering it here but there has been some casting news there for for preacher um so we have two misfits alumni actually mm-hmm. um in um being cast in Preacher, one Joseph Gilgum, um, who um, will play the Irish vampire Cassidy, mm-hmm. and Ruth Negger, who will play Tulip O'Hara, who is currently, we see as an inhuman in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers yeah. for anyone who um, hasn't been watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh-huh. Um, but, th- yeah, look, really um, good cast in there. I particularly like Joseph Gilgum. Um, he is also an alumni of Chorley in Lancashire, um, uh-huh. which is very close to where I was born and brought uh-huh. up in Ormskirk. Uh-huh. So, um, plus, big fan of Misfits, at least, you know. And he has great comedy moments in um, the episodes that he plays uh, I can't remember the character's name but his time in um, in Misfits was towards the later series mm-hmm. and he had some really good sort of deadpan dry comedy moments which I think will work really well for Cassidy and um, to be honest should be really interesting to see um, I wonder whether he's a fan of Chorley FM as well. <laughs> maybe, maybe we are not going to say their call sign here, John. Um, but uh, Ruth Negga as well is a fantastic actress. I've loved her in Agents of Shield. Anybody who's uh, anybody who's listened to the Welcome to Level Seven podcast, our friends over there, anybody who's watched Agents of Shield will know how good Ruth Negga's character is in Agents of Shield. Um, the girl with the flowery dress. Yes, yes. Uh, fantastic character, fantastic actress, and really yeah. looking forward to it. From uh, hails from Ethiopia and Irish descent, so she's lived in Limerick in Ireland for most of her life, and she was also in a, a bunch of Irish shows like Love Hate, which is a fantastic, really brutal, uh, violent show, uh, but a really good show. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And she was also in Breakfast on Pluto with another scarecrow, um, Killian Murphy, who yeah. was in Christopher Nolan's films, playing playing the scarecrow character, played in all three of uh, of Christopher Nolan's. Uh, Batman films. Yeah. And Killian Murphy is also um, doing a great term in Peaky Blinders, mm-hmm. um, which is a BBC show about 
gangsters in and around Birmingham in sort of the 1920s, 1930s, just after the First World War. Really good. There is also Bane in that as well. So there's yeah. a real Batman <laughs> alumni coming out of that. But back Slightly to, drifting off point, yeah. I, I know, yeah, yeah. But back to Preacher. Uh, if you don't know anything about Preacher, it's a really interesting book. It's about a character called Jesse Custer who gets possessed by Genesis and has the ability to make anybody do what he wants them to do. The main core cast that he's going to be hanging around with in the uh, in the show are Chula Bohair, played by Ruth Negga, and Cassidy, uh, an Irish vampire, played by Joseph Gilgun, as uh, as John mentioned. Um so really, really intrigued to watch the show. It's got much more of a um, vibe about a battle against God. There's a lot of a lot so of. So it feels uh, almost like a western. I mean, you read the comics. It, it's almost like um, the outlaws on the run from the sheriff mm-hmm. to an extent. You yeah. get that kind of vibe, but it's all from a sort of a supernatural type of uh, place. I think. Yeah, um, and this time the sheriff is God. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, also, there is in Coletti as well has also been cast as one of the more unfortunately turned um, members or, or characters within the um, within the book, who has a gun to the face, um, a gunshot to the face, doesn't he? Mm. Which causes him to be given a, a certain nickname, yes. which means he could always have bad breath. Potentially, potentially. We are unfortunately, because this is an all-ages show, we're not going to share his name on this particular uh, podcast, but uh, you can search it up on IMDb. (laughs) Uh, Ian Coletti is playing the character uh, with the unfortunate name, and I do feel sorry for him when his casting agent called him up and said, you've got the part up. (laughs) But I wonder whether we need to change up... um our age appropriateness mm. given we would have been talking about essentially drug taking in this episode and um, there is the talk of um you know there's quite a lot of violence in gotham mm-hmm. um you know it is relatively um adult themes being discussed here yeah well, well, feels once once gotham gets an adult rating perhaps maybe that would be something that will come next season um but once it does potentially we'll change up the writing of our show but while we while we have at the moment and while we tell itunes that we are an all-ages podcast there are certain words we will not be able to use on Absolutely. this podcast. We will be able to use them on the Daredevil podcast because that's a PG podcast. So, uh, mm-hmm. so follow us on DefendersTVPodcast.com slash iTunes to hear a slightly more uh, adult uh, version of the show. So we got a bit of news from WonderCon, uh, which happened this weekend in uh, in the US. Um, featured some of the cast members, including Ben McKenzie, Robin Lord Taylor, Corey Michael Smith, and also one of the showrunners, John Stevens, uh, who's written a bunch of episodes for this season of Gotham. And they talked about some revelations for season two, didn't they? They certainly did. I mean, they listed off a good number of um, new introductions that we can hopefully look forward to in season two, including... Two of my favourites, um, certainly, I love the Mad Hatter, um, and that was uh, dropped within um, the the panel at WonderCon. And part of me actually thinks that would be a nice little um, addition to the whole story arc surrounding Ed Nigma and the development of the Riddler, because for me, I find them kind of from the same songbook, really. I, they're, they're that kind of... Um, they they deal in riddles and puzzles and so on, mm. and I I find that would be an interesting little face off between those two. Yeah, it'll be an interesting character to bring in. Mad Hatter controls people by uh, by developing hats that have a control device inside the hat, isn't that the, that's the the basic modus operandi of the character? But it's a bit of a it'll be an interesting one to bring in. Um, 
what John Stevens talked about was that he they want to bring in Clayface and Matt Hatter. They're both villains that we're going to bring in in season two. They both have great backstories and great personalities. Clayface especially is a character I want to explore the origin of. Now, Clayface is a character that can mold himself to look like anybody else in the comic books. Um, we've talked about him a couple of times in things like Hush uh, and in Gotham Central, I believe he was yeah. in there. Um but I don't know. It's a bit of an odd character to be to be in uh, Gotham. Gotham's a very real, uh, grounded show. Um, I suppose with both of them, um, though, it is this idea of to what extent will they bring in the more fantastical elements? I mean, mm-hmm. I I can see that Mad Hatter could work. I mean, you could even say the controlling device could be pheromones in some kind mm-hmm. of what you you can always ground it. I think it could yeah. even be Clayface. Could be a master of disguise. I mean, almost that kind of thing. I mean, there's yeah. ways and of of grounding the thing and the characters, but also maybe then this becomes another step up. I mean, we have coming from Falcone and Maroni this whole idea that you know chaos is coming. You know, we need to be grounded sort of criminals to an extent mm. and you know without um organized crime and um or and the police you, you you know they don't have a business and you've got this next step of oswald cobblepot and then maybe the likes of mad hatter and clayface represent this further escalation of this craziness and um, that starts to get introduced into into gotham yeah so it'd be interesting how they play that i mean still it, it depends on how they want to develop the the series whether they're happy to go down those more fantastical yeah. um, avenues or whether they want to ground it yeah or as you say whether it's just something like the character of clayface way before he becomes clayface and you get a little hint at the end of the episode as to who he may become. Yeah, yeah. really interesting. The other person that they have talked about for the entire entirety of season one introducing and they haven't introduced him yet is Victor Freeze, uh, Doctor Freeze, I guess. Yeah. Um. So who's probably well known to a lot of a lot of viewers of uh, of Batman the animated series, a lot of comic book readers, um, and some viewers of the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of the character in. Uh, Yes, we should not talk about that. Okay, we won't talk about that. Um, but again, you know, he's a doctor, he's a science villain, which they've played with quite a bit in season one. And, and John Stevens says, you know, having a science villain is quite an easy thing for the show to use. So you can play with a lot of his abilities without going into the world of superheroes, is his exact quote about it. I think as well, it plays in quite nicely with the whole Wayne Enterprise um, aspect and, and the, the darker elements there, like we saw with, with Viper. Um, you know, Dr. Freeze has always been that he's been employed by Wayne Enterprises anyway in some of his stories. Uh, and he's also on the side done research that will ultimately help him with um, saving his wife. Mm. So he could be brought into the whole Wayne Enterprises, maybe darker elements that we saw in Viper, I think, which yeah. could be quite quite good as well. And then the other aspect that maybe links to these darker elements of the Wayne Enterprise board and mm-hmm. um, would be then the Court of Owls that is something that was um, discussed as well with mm-hmm. John Stevens on this panel as well. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we've we talked about it on the on the show a couple of times in the past. The Court of Owls is again a shadowy organisation that works within Gotham, controlling things from the background, uh, brought in very recently by uh, Scott Snyder in the in the comic books. Um, 
And again, you know, we've we've kind of mentioned that there could be a possibility they could be behind people like Falcone, Moroni, and Wayne Enterprises. They could be controlling all of them behind the scenes, which is what the Court of Owls did. Uh, there is a very interesting portion of the story uh, that Scott Snyder wrote where uh, Bruce investigates the Court of Owls very early in his childhood, very around, you know, the age of the age of twelve or thirteen. Um, so, very good possibility that uh, that Bruce will go on an investigation into the Court of Owls and may not find anything, but could tie in quite well with season two. Yeah, definitely. I think um, as well from this panel at WonderCon, two of the other things that I thought were quite good, and I mean, I suppose you know, spoilers here, but I don't really think so. I think we've discussed how potentially Enigma uh, might have a transformatory moment and become uh, the Riddler mm-hmm. or the start of becoming the Riddler, you know, that was hinted at on the panel as well by Corey Michael Smith, but towards mm-hmm. the end of season one now, there is going to be a moment within one of the episodes where maybe you start to get that more um, definitive break in the, these personalities between mm-hmm. Ed Nigma um, and the Riddler uh, and, and see that. So I'm looking forward to that because I really have enjoyed this long game with um, Ed Nigma. Yeah. And then that. Fish, Mooney, and Oswald are going to reunite um, towards the end of um, the season one. Probably in the the last four episodes at some point she will show up. And I can't wait to see um, how that will will work out as well. And I think Robin Lord-Taylor indicated how, you know, Fish taught Oswald everything about Gotham. Yes, the relationship is fraught and dramatic, but he still... Uh, recognizes her influence on him and respects that. So it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out as well. Yeah. I really am looking forward to those two elements um, towards the end of season one. Yeah, as well. absolutely, and especially uh, noting that Jada Pinkett Smith won't be returning for season two. It will be a very interesting meeting with. Uh, will it result in a death? Potentially, potentially, or um, an Arkham imprisonment. Yeah, very much, very much uh, of interest. Uh, the last piece that John Stevens talked about for the show, he did reveal quite a lot. He was quite candid in this in this interview with uh, WonderCon. Uh, and thanks very much to Collider.com for the article. We'll put up the uh, the actual article on uh, our show notes. But one other thing that John Stevens did reveal is that we will start to see the other side of Bruce Wayne in season two. Um, the one element that we that we all know about Bruce Wayne is that he's a millionaire playboy or a billionaire playboy, uh, and he creates that persona for himself, which is how everybody thinks of him in the city of Gotham. Right now, he's just a young kid, um, but he will start to develop that persona and start to develop that that side of him where he's uh, he's using his money to uh, to show outwardly that he's just. Um, he's just a, a carefree billionaire. His other mask, effectively. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that'll be quite interesting to see the start of. I presume it won't be as deep as driving fast cars and uh, and hanging around with uh, hanging around with loads of street models because he's probably a bit young for that. But uh, but they, you know, maybe maybe a uh, maybe he'll buy a circus or something next season. <laughs> something uh... possibly. But I I also think that it would be great to see him with Tommy Elliot. That it, part of that development of this extra persona involves. Tommy Elliot and maybe some of the story of Bruce and Tommy Elliot as we saw in Hush obviously Mm -hmm. not the whole thing but I think that would be a really good episode and a really good way of exploring uh, Bruce Wayne's backstory and that dual persona maybe more and that tie-in of Tommy Elliot and the fate of his own parents as well bring Cole Palace back he was really good as well exactly yeah yeah all right, that's it for the news, and that's it for everything from WonderCon. 
but with that, you can also follow us for all things Gotham and the DC Connected Universe at gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher, Player FM, and any other good podcast catcher uh, for our podcasts that come out once a week. Um, you can also um, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Google+. Plus. Again, just search Gotham TV Podcast, and we should um, appear like a bright, shining star um, in your search browser, um, and we will um, be more than happy to see you following us, liking our page, or plus wanting us on, on Google+. Plus. Remember, any comments, thoughts, discussions, or reviews left on iTunes um, till the end of Gotham um, Season 1 will all go into a hat if we talk about them on air and um, will be in line to win a Christopher Ominga signed print of uh, Oswald Cobblepot along with some other goodies, which I think we can say which one of those um, will be. Okay. So, in addition to the Christopher Ominga print, we can also then say that um, the first five issues of uh, Gotham by Midnight will also be in um, the winner's pack, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that has artwork by Ben Templesmith, Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the reason why that will also be going in as well, to keep the artwork theme of the the prize yeah yeah absolutely ben Tapplesmith is definitely one of our favorite artists artists over here at uh, gotham tv podcast we had the pleasure of meeting him at new york comic-con as well and we wanted to get the full set of his issues from gotham at midnight he's uh, he's done just the first five issues uh, i'll now move on to another artist to do issue six um but all five issues are now out and and uh, will be available in the prize pack for the winner of our competition which is open worldwide and we will be sending the uh, the pack out to whoever wins that that prize after the final episode of Gotham. And um, remember, any more details, you can go on to gothamtvpodcast.com forward slash competition and um, you will be able to uh, see the details of that competition there as well. Yep. So thanks very much for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. As always, it's a pleasure. And we'll be back next week with the next episode of Gotham, which is... The Blind Fortune Teller. Yeah, I don't know whether I can tell what's going to happen in that episode. Mm, Crystal balls at the ready, everyone. (laughs) Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again next week. Gotham TV Podcast. Do not cross Alan and Montoya.